0: Welcome to the New Chemist Podcast. We're glad you're listening. Feel free to download this podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Here on the New Chemist, we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change, as well as the other sciences, careers, community, research, and COVID-19. We're happy you're tuning in. My guest today is Dr. Emery Brown. Thanks for joining me today. It is so good to hear from you. Just briefly, I'll inform my audience about you. Dr. Emery Ann Brown is the Edward Hood Professor of Medical Engineering and Computational Neuroscience at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. The Warren M. Zappel Professor of Anesthesia at Harvard Medical School and a practicing anesthesiologist at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Brown received his BA, Magna Cum Laude, in Applied Mathematics from Harvard College, his MA and his PhD in Statistics from Harvard University, and his MD Magna Cum Laude from Harvard Medical School. Dr. Brown is an anesthesiologist, statistician, whose experimental research has made important contributions towards understanding the neuroscience of how anesthetics act in the brain to create the state of general anesthesia. In his statistics research, he has developed signal processing algorithms to solve important data analysis challenges in neuroscience. His research has been featured on National Public Radio in Scientific American Technology Review, of The New York Times, and Ted Mid 2014. He serves as the Director of the Harvard-MIT Health Sciences and Technology Program, the Associate Director of the Institute for Medical Engineering and Science at MIT, an Investigator at the PICOR Center for Learning and Memory, Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences at MIT. He's a Fellow of the Institute of Mathematical Statistics, a Fellow of the National Academy of Inventors, a member of the National Academy of Engineering, a member of the National Academy of Sciences, and a member of the National Academy of Medicine. In in 2007, he was given the NIH Director's Pioneer Award. He's also a member of the Association of University Anesthesiologists. These are just a few of his accomplishments. A very distinguished scientist, please welcome Dr. Henry. Thanks Dr. Brown for joining me today. It's so good to have a distinguished scientist such as you um, on this podcast. So Dr. Brown, um, what have been your longstanding interests in the field of science? Can you just discuss some of those?
1: Well, I I think they varied over time. I think that um, probably my strongest interest in science began in college when I got interested in statistics. So being a statistician, developing Statistical methods and algorithms that people could really use to analyze data became an early interest of mine, and that's something which I pursued, you know, throughout my career. First, working on studying outcomes from surgery as an undergraduate, then later studying circadian rhythms during my PhD work. Okay. After that, looking at developing algorithms in general for neuroscience data analysis, for looking at neural spike trains, for looking at EEG, LFP local field potentials and these sorts of things
0: okay.
1: and then <clears throat> from there my interest developed into trying to understand anesthesia so I'd say those are probably the, the principal focus areas so statistics and then statistics applied to neuroscience and then uh, anesthesiology the mechanism of general anesthesia.
0: So I think by any, any standard of measurement, or most standards of measurement, most people would say you have been a successful academician. Uh, you have got, achieved your PhD from Harvard, your MD from Harvard, uh, MA from Harvard, BA from Harvard. You've won numerous prizes. You're part of many societies, the National Academy of Inventors, National Academy of Science, the National Academy of Engineering, National Academy of Medicine. So how do you maintain view of the bigger picture? in your career and in your life in general how are you doing that
1: and and so when you say the bigger picture you're referring to
0: academically and also personally how do you maintain view of the bigger picture in terms of like the overarching goals that you have set your mission statement your vision for your life
1: well i i I think that uh one of the things that i've tried to do is try to work on an important question. Okay. and what you find out with important questions is you can't solve them in five minutes so mm-hmm. that necessarily creates like a long trajectory so for example the problem of thinking on how does anesthesia work and that's something which has been a question for now coming here 175 years and so picking apart picking part of that and going after it You know, it's something which is going to be it's a challenging question. And if you're able to solve, it, it's going to have broad implications, not only for taking care of patients, but also for neuroscience in general and science in general. So that's the sort of things I've I've tried to work on, like picking important questions. So as another illustration and thinking about circadian rhythms, circadian rhythms are everywhere. They control our our daily function. So the more we're able to accurately quantify how they their their properties, again, it has broad implications. So I guess the two sentence summary would be picking um, important questions and pursuing those important questions. Okay, yeah, that's good, that's good.
0: So in what specific ways for the layman, uh, have you been adaptive and creative in the field of science? What specific ways? I know you work with anesthesia, I know you've been a statistician.
1: What specific ways have you added your flair to those fields? Well, I, I think that uh, if we start with like the circadian rhythms, I think right there was the the main thing that I did was in looking at the data that were being recorded at those times, like looking at core temperature rhythms to track the circadian system in in patients or in study subjects. Mm-hmm. I worked to give an accurate description of those of those oscillations. Okay. So trying to make the model capture the structure and the data as accurately as possible and using what we call harmonic regression techniques to do that, mm-hmm. but then not just stopping there but developing a full inference framework so you could actually, you could measure the aspects of the rhythm, you know, say the period, the mm-hmm. amplitude, and then from there be able to make statements of uncertainty about, you know, how confident we were about the characterizations that we came up with. Well, wow. So that allows you to have... Uh, an inference framework and then going on to some of the other work like looking at neuroscience data
2: mm-hmm.
1: the same idea in principle and but there's a key concept there that I was able to take advantage of and use and I've continued to use throughout my career and that is neuroscience data because the are recording from the brain and the central nervous system is dynamic it changes over time
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you need statistical methods that also capture those changes over time for it to be accurate. And so those were things that I was practiced in, that I learned as part of my PhD training. So whereas most of the methods that were being used are static,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so, you, so then it becomes like a kludge to really use them. <clears throat> so by starting from a framework where I already had methods that were dynamic, mm-hmm. that got phenomena that changed every time, I was able to develop more accurate descriptions of those sorts of data as well. So in other words, really understanding the properties of the data, really what the essential elements of the problem are, I think that's something which I tried to focus on and that's, you know, yielded me some, you know, some measure of success to today.
0: Yeah, I would say so too. It did. So um, how have you sort of found the right environment for you to thrive scientifically and intellectually? I, I I think a lot of people aim or aspire to be at institutions such as Harvard and other institutions as well. Um, so how did you find how do you know that was the right environment for you to thrive in, scientifically and intellectually?
1: Well, I can't say that I knew it. I mean, I, I think I was just like any other student, starting off at, you know, like Harvard. You know, really, in many respects, impressed by what the institution had to offer. Mm-hmm. But then, once I was there, then saying, well, I really have to take advantage of this. And I remember specifically that um, when I was a when I was a junior, and I was thinking about what I wanted to do for my senior, my research for senior thesis. Uh, Ken Walker, who was a professor in the statistics department at the time, said, "Well, since you're thinking about going to medical school, you should probably write a thesis, an undergraduate thesis, on a medical topic." And he suggested that I go and talk with Professor Ken, sorry, talk with Professor Fred uh, Mosteller about that particular issue, sorry. and and work developing a research project with him. <clears throat> because he was a statistician who was working on studying outcomes from surgery mm-hmm. and that this would be a good idea for me to to join a project like that so that's what i did mm-hmm. so i guess the key thing was realizing mm-hmm. that um what sort of opportunities were there mm-hmm. at harvard and then taking advantage of them because you could certainly be there and not take advantage of opportunities that were there that's true I think one of the real things that and i think it was the case at the time i think it still continues to be the case the opportunity to write a, a senior thesis with you know a leading scholar in area is something which you know was had was amazingly beneficial for me for long term i got to watch up close and personal how you know one of the top statisticians in the world did research i got to see you know how he how he thought how he interacted with you know other scientists other physicians with uh, with physicians and and it, it was very helpful for me to think about the sort of scientist, and in my case also physician, that I wanted to be, and the way I'd like to be able to, to do research. And being very specific, one thing about Professor Mottfeller was that he could work with anybody. He could work with the best statistician, you know, the top physicians, mm-hmm. graduate students, postdocs, but he could also work with undergraduates like me. And so having, you know, just basically seeing that, and I can honestly say that's something that him, I've tried to emulate.
0: Oh wow. That's good. That's definitely good. So um, you speak about uh, your desire to attend medical school in your junior year. So how did you delineate or def- decide between MD, PhD, or MD? Because well, I think that's a, lot, that's a challenge that a lot of people encounter. How did you differentiate whether you want to choose MD, PhD, or MD?
1: Well, I, I think what happened was, is I knew when I came to college that yeah. I wanted to go to medical school, that was for sure. Okay. And I can't remember exactly or whether it was in my sophomore year or, or earlier, but I decided I wanted to do a PhD also. Okay. And I when I once I really fell in love with statistics, which was between sophomore and junior year, mm-hmm. I decided I wanted to do my PhD in statistics because I just like yeah, I really liked statistics. It was just very powerful paradigm, very powerful framework was and still is. Mm-hmm. And and I just wanted to to master that. And I thought that uh, but i also wanted to be a physician mm-hmm. and i thought as opposed to just compromising and doing one or the other why not do both and that was how i just made the decision mm-hmm. which was a fairly avant-garde idea at the time because um when i entered the harvard md phd program nobody had done a phd in statistics before that was a rather new idea there's a new idea there, uh, there but also in other programs in the country because it was a People looked at me with a lot of surprise when I, meant, when I said that's what I wanted to do my PhD in. But it was very clear to me that you know medicine was a field that had a lot of uncertainty, mm-hmm. a lot of data, and even more now. And having people who were formally trained in how to quantify that uncertainty and make decisions on uncertainty just seemed like a natural path. And that's what I just decided to do.
0: Yeah, that's good. That's good. So, given all your responsibilities and accomplishments, Doctor Brown, how do you maintain a balanced life, or how do you strive to maintain balance?
1: Well, it's um, you know I, I think uh, you know family is first. There's no question about that. Yeah, yeah. And you know the uh, the accomplishments are basically you no know, fun, and they have they have no luster. You know if your family isn't well taken care of and you're, you know, your family isn't happy mm-hmm. so you know we spend a lot of time you know on you know downtime on the weekends vacationing you know during the summer spring when the kids were and you know, when the kids were younger sort of making sure we took you know vacations during the four seasons mm-hmm. and you know my wife like me likes to travel so we and very often if I have trips to various places to give lectures, we turn them into sort of family outings also. Okay. So you know, by, by doing that, it's made it possible to um, you know, pursue activities that are relevant to my career, mm-hmm. but also to make sure that, you know, I'm not losing sight of my family.
0: Yeah, that's good priorities, having priorities. I've heard that uh, in several interviews that having priorities that they do complement to maintain balance. So, what would you attribute to your success as a pioneer in the field, Dr. Brown? What would you attribute? Uh, what characteristic? What was it? Your upbringing as a child? Was it your time at Harvard? Or Was it your belief system? Your perspective on life? What would you say has complemented your success as a pioneer in the field? Would be mentorship
1: I, I think that i think that my parents and my family deserve tremendous credit for yeah. you know sort of setting me on the right track and it's, so for example I mean, both of my parents were teachers they felt that education was very important okay anytime i wanted to do something or pursue something they were always behind me
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then you know my my brothers were were always very very good in school also Okay. And so people would always say, "Well, you're going to be as good as your brother," you know, sort of things. So that also created a certain amount of incentive. But not only my brothers, but my cousins too. Right? They were also really very good in school, and uh, and and so so. In other words, there were these a number of like you know sort of role models around. Which wow. I don't think we use that term then. You know, we think of them that way, but there were people you wanted to be like. So now we would call them role models, right? Okay. But you know, one of my cousins, uh, Robert Brown, who went to, uh, you know, Carnegie Mellon, was a star basketball player, honor student, and he was always sitting around reading books, you know, during the summer. I mean, so I'm mean just, so I mean, that that's the image that I, you know, that I had of him, or one of my cousins, who was, uh, you know, who, what was when we were kids was teaching us lines from HMS Pinafore, you know, that sort of thing. Wow. Or, and so, so the idea, so being smart was cool, essentially. That, that, was the, that was the, I think I can, I really remember that idea. And like, the, the, you know, the smarter you were in this environment around our family, kind of like, you know, the cooler you were. Wow. So, and, and so mm-hmm. I think that kind of instilled this in me. Or for example, like my, my oldest brother is a very good writer. Mm-hmm. And my, my middle brother was a physicist. Or wow. no, just a retired physicist now. So again, you, you, it it didn't seem like that at the time, but they were implicitly setting bars, mm-hmm. you know, for me to try to jump over wow. just by what they were doing, you know, by example.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I, I think that I think those those uh, I think those are the origins, and then then realizing once you had opportunities, mm-hmm. you took advantage of them. Yeah. But then you have some serendipity. You have some people who realize yeah. that you have, you know, potential, and they try to help you realize it. Mm -hmm. Like my language teacher at Exeter, you know, Mr. Bajia, Mm -hmm. who spoke like five languages, and so I wanted to be like Mr. Bajia, you know, you know, try to be as proficient in as many languages as he was. Or, for example, when I was at, when I was an undergraduate at Harvard, one of the anesthesiologists there, Dr. Uh, Jack McPeak, Mm -hmm. know, took an interest in me, he was one of my My thesis advisors and he's the first person who took me to the operating room and then you know several years later when i decided to go into anesthesiology i was able to turn to him and get advice and he helped me you know arrange to take you know a rotation in anesthesiology and decided that that's what i wanted to go into so in addition to so so then so it's it's a number of things it's not just basically like any one thing that's good you know so some i say some young Some early on some folks that i really looked up to later on some folks who realizing and acknowledging my potential you know helped me out and i I was very grateful for that wow that's powerful yeah so you
0: you spoke and from my understanding it seems like you grew up in a culture of excellence of -hmm. course i'm sure there were things that could have been improved on but um you said you grew up in an environment where it seems like everyone was pursuing excellence what what would you say would you say it was your parents or their brothers and sisters that contributed to that oh yeah yeah for
1: example yeah like so my mother's family my mother's family grew up in pittsburgh and uh, mm. the uh, my mother and her older sister so my mother was one of seven children okay. and uh so she was the second oldest and her sister was was extremely smart you know, oh, your okay. older sister. My mother's extremely smart. She graduated from high school and she was 16. Wow. I remember my uncle, who was the next one in line, the third one, was saying to me, he said, You know, your mother and aunt and, your, and your aunt needed to made it hard for me because they had done so well in school. I had to do well too. You know, that sort of thing. Okay. And, you sure. know, on the other hand, my father was very industrious. I mean, he was someone who was orphaned. He was 14. He and his brother lost both his parents, they were raised by their grandfather. Wow. But they had someone who, my, my, his grandfather, my great grandfather, was this amazing guy. He was a minister, but he was also a gentleman farmer, okay. and he owned this very large parcel of land, mm-hmm. you know, there in in Florida, where I grew up, which we still own today. Okay. And that he was an amazingly industrious person, and I know that rubbed off on my father because my father was always doing stuff both for the family but also for the community he was very committed to his uh you know his com- his community uh-huh. so i i think that in fact i know that you know i inherited that 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 perspective you know those uh-huh. goals those sorts of uh the, the, the sort of uh the, the sort of can do attitude that my father you know always had i'll just give you one example like
0: um, okay i'm here to listen
1: at the time uh, my father's grandfather wanted him to move back to florida because after he got married they lived in new york and in pittsburgh and um, he wanted him to move back because he wanted somebody living on their property so my father decided to build a house so this was in the ninth about 1957 1958 Um, and as you can imagine, my father couldn't get a loan from the bank to build a house, okay. and and as we know, one of the, the most important things entering into the into the American dream was to be able to build a house and you know lay down roots, right? Yes, I agree. So I didn't know this until many years later. Um, he actually borrowed money from an auto body shop to build a house. He couldn't cool. get a loan from the bank. Wow. And I remember when we paid off the note, and I was, I don't know, I must have been about 10 or 11 at the time. And I didn't quite understand everything, you know, that was going on, but I still subsequently figured out what had happened. Mm-hmm. But but the thing was, is that because the conventional means that most, you know, Americans would have used to build a house, getting a loan from the bank and doing that, um, was wasn't available to him, he had to come up with another strategy yeah. that would work. Mm-hmm. and he did it and so i think about that now i mean think about if he'd not been able to do that
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know you know where would i you know where would i be now if, if, if he hadn't done that
0: mm-hmm. and
1: so but then taking from that realizing that if people put obstacles in your way you have to re, you have to outthink them yeah i mean and, I, and i've seen myself do that like on a number of occasions but but i mean But that was probably one of the most, you know, concrete examples because Mm. the people at the bank couldn't believe that an African-American would want to build like a real house, you know, like a solid, you know, three bedroom, you know, two and a half bathroom, you know, living room, Florida room. You know, a side porch, you know, house, they, they figured we just have some idea of like a little shanty or something like that in mind, but that was, that was far from what my father imagined because he had studied industrial arts in college, so he knew how to build things. And with, with his brother and his uncles, they actually built the house. Wow.
0: Wow. That's good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. I'm learning a lot, Dr. Brown. So, um, how have you maintained vision and teamwork in your environment? In your lab, in your workspace, in Mass General, um, how do you maintain vision and teamwork? How do you make sure that everyone's collaborating and seeing the big picture and trying to answer those important questions that you mentioned?
1: I, I think I think there are two things. I think one you you, you look for you look for cool problems okay. and you get people excited about cool problems. I think that's the starting point, yeah. and then you know you you let people loose and let them use their creativity to start working on it. you guide them mm-hmm. but at least this is what I like to do I like to guide people to help them solve problems and then pitch in you know when they you know, need my help because it helps them to develop their creative their, their creative capacities and, and you know bring them to bear on a, on a problem mm-hmm. um, I, I think that that's probably the most important thing and also making it fun I mean mm-hmm. you know I Uh, I feel like in many regards now I'm more a cheerleader than anything else I'm not so much the person like doing the work I'm just the rah 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 rah, you know yeah keeping them going and uh, offering suggestions and making sure people aren't getting stuck Mm -hmm. and and I think that's that's probably the main thing I do Mm -hmm. and I can honestly say it's fun It's, it's fun working with you know it's watching people Or you know, many years my junior master concepts that I didn't master until I was like maybe 20 years older than they were. Like, wow, they know this stuff already. You can only imagine what they can do, what they'll be able to do. You know, going on into the future. Mm -hmm. And so, just sitting there marveling at that and trying to facilitate that is a real pleasure. And I, I, I I try to keep that going on a day-to-day basis. Okay, wow.
0: So uh, as we start to wrap up you mentioned how being smart was cool i i can be wrong with this however i'm not sure if that's the the prevailing message in many instances or in many circles mm-hmm. um so what would you say could complement the change that dynamic um where it's not just the athletic environments that have uh, a lot of att- uh, attraction to them for young people but academic environments as well you know how can we make that a more prevailing message that intellectual curiosity and intellectual development is worth the time and effort.
1: Yeah, I mean I, I think we really have to I mean I, I'm clearly biased because I'm an I'm an academic I'm in science and I you know feel yeah, so so. that people should know about academics right. and science and those sorts of things. But but I think that you know, you know, I'm indebted to you for taking time to talk to somebody like me to allow me to tell my story. Because oh, wow. you know it's you know it, it, what's it's more exciting to know to hear about Jaden Jason Tatum having scored fifty points and won the game for the Celtics than oh, definitely. about what I'm doing you know <laughs> so and and that that's just the reality though so. that's true but, however you know being able to like for example. I have three sort after my father I have like three heroes, additional heroes in mathematics. You know one is Benjamin Banneker, you know the black mathematician who laid out DC. He's the first person to really characterize the cycles of the circadia, you know the, the, you know the, the insects which come, which come out every 17 years. So he was really and he did this over something like four or five cycles. so he started when he was 17 okay. And so he was probably the country's first data scientist, when you think about it. Or another person is Catherine Johnson, when I learned about her, I was just like blown away. Mm -hmm. You know, basically the woman mathematician, African-American woman mathematician, who worked out the flight trajectories for the early um, Mercury and I think also Gemini space missions. Mm -hmm. I mean, just think about it. She did the calculations by hand.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: I mean, that, that's that's just like unreal. And the third person who actually had the good fortune to meet is David Blackwell. He was an mm-hmm. African-American professor at Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley professor of statistics. Mm-hmm. I mean, just like an amazing mind, soft-spoken, just totally respected because he was just so, so brilliant. First African-American elected to the National Academy of Sciences in 1964. So. Well. more than 100 years after the academy was actually set up, the first African-American was elected, and, he was, and it was he. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think about, you know, people like that, and I'm saying, gosh, if I can be anything like those guys, you know, so, yeah. you know, I, I, you know, clearly, the accomplishments of uh, of LeBron James or or uh, Magic Johnson and the things that, you know, are often talked about, but like in my realm, you know, I see somebody like these people, they're like my they're my heroes and those are the people mm-hmm. I aspire to be like. Yeah, that's good.
0: So, uh, as we conclude, do you have any advice to those wanting to pursue the field you are currently working in? So budding scientists, um, what what advice would you give to those wanting to pursue the field you are currently working in? Whether it be statistics or medicine or just a PhD in general. Um,
1: I, I, I think to try to get involved and gain, gain experience early. Um, okay. I can tell you, I get letters almost every day from students asking to come and work in my group. Okay. Literally, and of different ages, all the way from junior high school, you know, up through, you know, high school, college, postdocs. And I'm amazed at what some of these students have told me they already know.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Not, some of them are from the United States, some are from, not, they're from outside, from basically effectively the four corners of the earth
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so but realizing that that's what people do and not being bashful about doing that and if the first time you write somebody you don't hear from them no big deal keep going if you want okay, to up. Help, right mm-hmm. um, because it's 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 you're trying to create because all you need is one opportunity to sort of get your foot in the door mm-hmm. and once you have that and you realize and the other opportunities will open up mm-hmm. and agree. you can see that this is something that students from a number of different backgrounds are actually doing now. I, I think that students in general, particularly perhaps you know underrepresented minority students, will mm-hmm. agree to take the same the same approach. I agree, completely agree.
0: So, what has been some of the most beneficial advice you have received, Dr. Brown? As we conclude, what some what is the most beneficial advice, or piece of the beneficial advice, that you received either from your parents? As you mentioned, they were very industrious and intelligent. Um, even from your colleagues or professors, what was the one of the most passionate things about mm-hmm. Steve?
1: It doesn't ever work. The, the most. Uh, I mean, I, I think uh, a, a number of things. I think uh, you know, just in watching like my parents, you know, just like working hard and and also, but. Yeah than encouraging intellectual pursuits, you know?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, and I think I certainly have picked up on that and tried to amplify that. I just remember my mother saying at one point, like I told you, she was extremely smart. Mm-hmm. You know, she was, it was very clear she lived vicariously through us, you know, the things mm-hmm. that we were able to accomplish, you know, not only me, but my brothers as well. Mm-hmm. And one point in sort of a more candid moment she said you know if i had had opportunities i'm sure i could have been you know a lot more than i am now
0: yeah i've heard that same sentiment from and that
1: yeah. i mean that kind of stuck with me and just sort of said well you know i have an obligation to try to be as successful as i possibly can because my mother made it possible for me to get to where i am now mm-hmm. and she sacrificed a lot to, to be where she was and um and and I, I should you know I should basically do the same thing. But then a compliment a complimentary idea. I just, remember, I, I just remember my uncle saying once that you know it never hurts to be nice. hmm uh-huh. And so if you can help somebody, why not? You know just I know right. Just just that simple. Not deep, but just yeah. And it can take on many forms. It can just be meeting someone on the street to help helping someone with their career. So. Mm-hmm. I think somewhere some in there, yeah. some of the best advice I've received.
0: There are yeah. probably
1: other things, but they don't come to mind right now.
0: That's fair. That's fair. Well, Dr. Brown, thank you so much for joining me today. It was good to have you on.
1: Oh, thank you very much for having me today. I really appreciate it.
0: Chemistry field highlights. Femtochemistry. So surveying the literature I'm looking at the work of Yoshitaka Tanamar, Kochi Yamashita, and Philip A. Ann we embark on a new discussion, femtochemistry. In short, a key feature of the chemi- of chemistry is the homolysis or breaking and, or the formation, of bonds, which some consider to be theoretical constructs in some instances. A key feature of the elementary steps of bond making and breaking are molecular vibrations, which occur approximately at the 10 femtosecond scale. So okay, with this view in mind, Ultra fast processes um, are or is a phrase that can definitely describe chemical reactions and has been umbrellaed or covered or falls under the term femtochemistry. Chemistry conceptual developments. So, today we're going to be introducing or talking about regiochemistry principles. So key things you want to keep in mind are you want to understand the fundamentals of radiochemistry, understand Markovnikov's rule and the anti-Markovnikov's rule, and we want to try and understand Zaitsev's and Hoffman's rule. So radiochemistry principles and other ideas. Radiochemistry comes from the Latin word regionum, meaning direction. Radiochemistry describes the principles involved in the directionality or position and placement of reactants to form products. Radiochemistry is very important. We normally hear in advanced or high-level discussions of things being regioselective or regiodivergent, or it's it's very it's used a lot. So the reagent used can cause a specific radiochemical result or result in the opposite of what would normally occur. Markovnikov's rule. Markovnikov's rule, put simply, is he who has more gets more. Makovnikov's rule, in the addition of a halide to an unsymmetrical alkene, um, typically, in the addition of a halide to an unsymmetrical alkene, the hydrogen goes to the carbon with the greatest number of hydrogens, and the halide ion goes to the other carbon. In another way, this rule states that the halide adds so as to form the more stable carbocation intermediate. Antimikovnikov Antimikovnikov is the reverse. He who has more gets less. Which the carbon with the greatest number of hydrogens does not receive the hydrogen but the most electrophilic portion of the molecule. For example, in hydroboration oxidation in the presence of peroxides, the borohydrate adds the less substituted carbon of the hydrogen, and the hydrogen adds the more substituted carbon. In short. Now mechanistically it may occur slightly, it's a little bit more involved and more detailed, but in short, that's what we're going to say occurs. Um, however, the stability comes about because the electron density shifts from the electrophilic borohydride resulting in it possessing a partially negative charge and the more substituted carbon possessing a partially positive charge. This is indeed stable due to the electron density donating capacity of the alkyl group, S-character, and ob- orbital overlap of the alkyl carbon. The alkyl group with alkyl or electron donating substituent provides stability. Zeitz's so rule. So rule is a directionality principle in which more substituted alkene is favored to the use of a small base, such as ethoxide. Um, Zaitsev's rule is very significant and aids in predicting products and elimination reactions. Hoffman's rule. Hoffman's rule is another directionality principle, in which the less substituted alkene is favored through the use of a huge or large base, uh, such as tert butoxide. Hoffman's rule is also very significant and aids in predicting elimination reactions. Postulate. The hammond leffler postulate essentially states that the product resembles the molecular arrangement of the transition state. In simpler terms, the view on the potential energy hill continues in some ways as you follow through the potential energy journey. So progressing in that direction, we're going to talk about some new stuff today. Again, surveying the literature and looking at the work of Shantanu Roy, Stefan Gadeka, and Vladimir Hellman, we embark on the journey of the bell evans polanyi principle. So typically, or uh, well in short, the bell evans polanyi principle is valid uh, for a chemical reaction that proceeds along the reaction coordinate over the transition state, and that concept is extended um, to molecular dynamics. Trajectories that in general do not cross the dividing surface between the initial and final local minima at the exact transition state. It's very important and it has a lot of implications. It's a conceptual tool in physical chemistry, and we have come to understand that this principle can be used to improve the efficiency of existing molecular dynamics based methods by tuning the energy of these molecular dynamic trajectories along with that we'll be discussing the dimroth principle or dimroth rearrangements these are frequently encountered in heteroaromatic chemistry and was first recognized in the triazole series Um, This term was coined in 1963 as a convenient way of referring to the isomerization proceeding by ring fission and subsequent recyclization, whereby a ring nitrogen and its attached substituent exchange place with an amino group in a position alpha to it. Moving right along, we discussed mechanistic highlight. Today we will be talking about the Suzuki cross coupling reaction. The Suzuki cross coupling or the Suzuki Miura cross coupling is a type of palladium catalyzed cross coupling reaction. CC bond formation using aryl halides and organobionic acids. It is one of the most important reactions in synthetic organic and medicinal chemistry. There are two suggested pathways. The oxopalladium pathway is a preferred mechanism, as some may say, and the boronic pathway is another um, description of what occurs. Of course, these occur through caloric cycles, and this reaction was likely first described around 1979. In 2010, Akira Suzuki, jointly with Richard F. Heck and Ichi Nagishi, Received the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for the development of palladium-catalyzed cross-coupling reactions. Wrapping up the highlight section, we'll talk about Nobel highlights. Svante so Arrhenius. Svante Arrhenius was born on February 19, 1859, near Uppsala, Sweden. He received the Nobel Prize on December 10, 1903, in recognition of his theory of electrolytic dissociation. His father, Sivant Gustav Ahenius, held a position at the University of Uppsala. His uncle, Johan Ahenius, was a botanist writer and a long-time secretary of the Swedish Agricultural Academy in Stockholm. Sivant Ahenius was an outstanding student in school. He learned reading and arithmetic at a very early age, and in his secondary school he excelled particularly in mathematics and physics. His physics teacher was M. Frideris author of the most popular contemporary Swedish secondary school physics textbook. His university degrees were all from the University of Uppsala. Definitely a chemist that worked hard. This ends the session of highlights for this podcast. Thanks for listening.
2: Entrevista entre David Ferguson, AMRSC AMRSB, productor y presentador de podcasts, y Dr. Esmeril Brown, MD, Ph.D. Eduardo Capucha, profesor de Médico Ingeniería y Computacional Neurociencia en Massachusetts Instituto de Tecnología. David Ferguson. Mi invitado de hoy es el Dr. Emery N. Brown. Gracias por acompañarme hoy. Es tan bueno escuchar de ti. Brevemente, informaré a mi audiencia sobre ti. El Dr. Emery Brown es el profesor Eduardo Ode de Ingeniería Médica y Neurociencia Computacional en el Instituto Tecnológico de Massachusetts. David Ferguson. El profesor Warren M. Zapol de Anestesia en la Facultad de Medicina de Harvard y anestesiólogo en ejercicio en el Hospital General de Massachusetts. El Dr. Brown recibió su B.A., Magnum Cum Laude, en Matemáticas Aplicadas de Harvard College, su M.A. y Ph.D. en Estadística de la Universidad de Harvard y su M.D. Magna Cum Laude de la Escuela de Medicina de Harvard. David Ferguson. El Dr. Brown es un anestesiólogo y estadístico cuya investigación experimental ha hecho contribuciones importantes para comprender la neurociencia de cómo actúan los anestésicos en el cerebro durante el estado de anestesia general. En su investigación estadística, ha desarrollado algoritmos de procesamiento de señales para resolver importantes desafíos de análisis de datos en neurociencia. David Ferguson. Su investigación ha aparecido en National Public Radio, en Scientific American, Technology Review de The New York Times y TED Med 2014. Se desempeña como codirector del Programa de Ciencias y Tecnología de la Salud de Harvard y MIT, director asociado del Instituto de Ingeniería y Ciencias Médicas del MIT, e investigador del Centro PicoWare para el Aprendizaje y la Memoria. David Ferguson. Departamento de Cerebro y Ciencias Cognitivas, en el MIT. Es miembro del Instituto de Estadística Matemática, miembro de la Academia Nacional de Inventores, miembro de la Academia Nacional de Ingeniería, miembro de la Academia Nacional de Ciencias y miembro de la Academia Nacional de Medicina. David Ferguson. En 2007, recibió el premio director Spioneer de los NI. También es miembro de la Asociación de Anestesiólogos Universitarios. Estos son sólo algunos de sus numerosos logros. Un científico muy distinguido. Dé la bienvenida al doctor Emery Brown. David Ferguson. Gracias, doctor Brown, por acompañarme hoy. Es tan bueno tener un científico distinguido, como usted, en este podcast. Entonces, Doctor Brown, ¿cuál ha sido su interés de larga data en el campo de la ciencia? ¿Puedes discutir algunos de esos? Doctora Emery Brown. Bueno, creo que variaron con el tiempo. Creo que probablemente mi mayor interés por la ciencia comenzó en la universidad cuando me interesé por la estadística. Así que ser estadístico, desarrollar métodos y algoritmos estadísticos que la gente realmente pudiera usar para analizar datos se convirtió en uno de mis primeros intereses. Doctora Emery Brown. Y eso es algo que perseguí a lo largo de mi carrera, primero trabajando en el estudio de los resultados de la cirugía como estudiante universitario, luego estudiando los ritmos circadianos durante mi doctorado funciona bien. Después de eso, mirando el desarrollo de ideas en general para el análisis de datos de neurociencia o mirando los trenes de picos neurales, estamos mirando EEG, nuestros potenciales de campo locales y este tipo de cosas. Doctora Emery Brown. Y luego, a partir de ahí, mi interés se convirtió en tratar de entender la anestesia. Así que diría que esos son probablemente los. Las principales áreas de enfoque, esa estadística y luego la estadística aplicada a la neurociencia y luego la anestesiología, los mecanismos de la anestesia general. David Ferguson. Entonces... Creo que según cualquier estándar de medición, o la mayoría de los estándares de medición, la mayoría de la gente dirá que ha sido un académico exitoso, que ha logrado su doctorado de Harvard, su MD de Harvard, MA de Harvard, BA de Harvard. Has ganado numerosos premios. David Ferguson. Eres parte de muchas sociedades, la Academia Nacional de Inventores, la Academia Nacional de Ciencias, la Academia Nacional de Ingeniería, la Academia Nacional de Medicina. Entonces... ¿Cómo mantienes la visión del panorama general en tu carrera y en tu vida en general? David Ferguson ¿Cómo estás haciendo eso? Doctora Emery Brown Entonces, cuando dices el panorama general al que te refieres David Ferguson Académica y también personalmente ¿Cómo mantiene una visión del panorama general en términos de los objetivos generales que ha establecido Su declaración de misión y su visión para su vida? Doctora Emery Brown Bueno, creo que una de las cosas que he tratado de hacer es tratar de trabajar en una cuestión importante. De acuerdo. Y lo que descubres con preguntas importantes es que no puedes resolverlas en 5 minutos. Entonces eso necesariamente crea como una larga trayectoria. Doctora Emery Brown. Entonces, por ejemplo, el problema de pensar cómo funciona la anestesia, eso es algo que ha sido una pregunta por ahora, este próximo año 175 años. Entonces... Separar, seleccionar parte de eso, y perseguirlo, ya sabes, es algo que va a ser una pregunta desafiante. Doctora Emery Brown y si puede resolverlo, tendrá amplias implicaciones no sólo para el cuidado de los pacientes, sino también para la neurociencia en general, la ciencia en general. Ese es el tipo de cosas en las que traté de trabajar, como elegir preguntas importantes, como otra ilustración y pensando en los ritmos circadianos, los ritmos circadianos están en todas partes. Doctora Emery Brown. Ellos controlan nuestra función diaria. Entonces. Cuanto más podamos cuantificar con precisión cómo recuperan sus propiedades, tendrá amplias implicaciones. Entonces, supongo que el resumen de dos oraciones sería elegir preguntas importantes y seguir esas preguntas importantes. David Ferguson. Bueno, sí, eso está bien. Eso es bueno. Entonces... ¿De qué maneras específicas para el profano ha sido usted adaptable y creativo en el campo de la ciencia? ¿Qué formas específicas? Sé que trabajas con anestesia. Sé que ha sido estadístico. David Ferguson. ¿De qué maneras específicas ha agregado su estilo a esos campos? Doctora Emery Brown. Bueno, creo que si comenzamos con los ritmos circadianos, creo que lo principal que hice fue mirar los datos que se estaban registrando en ese momento, como mirar los ritmos de temperatura central, para rastrear el sistema circadiano, en pacientes o en sujetos de estudio. Doctora Emery Brown. Trabajé para dar una descripción precisa de las de esas oscilaciones. Entonces, tratar de hacer que el modelo capture la estructura de los datos con la mayor precisión posible, y usar lo que llamamos técnicas de regresión armónica para hacer eso, pero luego no solo detenerse allí, sino desarrollar el marco de inferencia completo. Doctora Emery Brown. Entonces, en realidad, puede medir los aspectos del ritmo, digamos el periodo, la amplitud y luego, a partir de ahí, poder hacer declaraciones de incertidumbre sobre, ya sabes, qué tan seguros estábamos de las caracterizaciones que se nos ocurrieron. Doctora Emery Brown Bueno, eso te permite tener un marco de inferencia y luego pasar a otros trabajos, como mirar datos de neurociencia. La misma idea en principio, pero ahí está el concepto clave que pude aprovechar y usar, y he seguido usando a lo largo de mi carrera. Doctora Emery Brown. Y eso es datos de neurociencia, porque la tasa que estás registrando del cerebro y el sistema nervioso central es dinámica, cambia con el tiempo. Y necesita métodos estadísticos que también capturen esos cambios a lo largo del tiempo, para que sea preciso. Y esas fueron las cosas en las que practiqué, que aprendí como parte de mi doctorado capacitación. Doctora Emery Brown entonces, mientras que la mayoría de los métodos que se usaban son estáticos y entonces entonces se convierte en una pista para usarlos realmente entonces comenzando desde un marco donde ya teníamos métodos que eran dinámicos doctora Emery Brown ese fenómeno de captura cambia con el tiempo también pude desarrollar descripciones más precisas de ese tipo de datos entonces, en otras palabras, comprender realmente las propiedades de los datos y cuáles son realmente los elementos esenciales del problema. Doctora Emery Brown. Creo que esas son algunas de las cosas en las que he tratado de concentrarme y eso me ha dado algo, ya sabes, algo de éxito hoy. David Ferguson. Sí, yo también lo diría. Lo hizo. Entonces... ¿Cómo ha encontrado el entorno adecuado para prosperar científica e intelectualmente? Creo que mucha gente apunta o aspira a ser una institución como Harvard y otras instituciones también. David Ferguson. Entonces, ¿cómo descubriste cómo supiste que ese era el entorno adecuado para que prosperaras científica e intelectualmente? Doctora Emery Brown. Bueno, no puedo decir que lo supiera. Quiero decir, creo que yo era como cualquier otro estudiante, comenzando en Harvard. Ya sabes, realmente, en muchos aspectos, impresionado por lo que la institución tenía para ofrecer. Pero luego, una vez que estuve allí, dije, bueno, realmente tengo que aprovechar esto, y recuerdo específicamente que cuando. Doctora Emery Brown. Fue cuando estaba en tercer año y estaba pensando en lo que quería hacer para mi último año, mi investigación, la tesis de último año. Ken Bacter, que era profesor en el departamento de estadística en ese momento, dijo, bueno, ya que piensas ir a la escuela de medicina, probablemente deberías escribir una tesis, una tesis de pregrado sobre un. Doctora Emery Brown. Tema médico Y me sugirió que fuera y hablara con el profesor Fred Mosteller sobre ese tema en particular, y terminé desarrollando un proyecto de investigación con él porque era un estadístico que estaba trabajando en el estudio de los resultados de la cirugía. Doctora Emery Brown. Y sería una buena idea para mí unirme a un proyecto como ese. Así que eso es lo que hice. Así que supongo que la clave fue darse cuenta de eso. ¿Qué tipo de oportunidades había en Harvard y luego aprovecharlas porque ciertamente podrías estar allí y no aprovechar las oportunidades que estaban allí? Doctora Emery Brown. Eso es cierto. Creo que una de las cosas reales que creo que era el caso en ese momento, creo que todavía sigue siendo el caso. La oportunidad de escribir una tesis de último año con un área académica líder es algo increíble y beneficioso para mí a largo plazo. Doctora Emery Brown. Tuve que observar de cerca y personalmente cómo, ya sabes, uno de los mejores estadísticos del mundo investigaba. Pude ver cómo pensaba, cómo interactuaba con otros científicos y con los médicos. Y me ayudó mucho pensar en el tipo de científicos, en mi caso, también médico y... Doctora Emery Brown. Yo quería ser y la forma en que me gustaría ser capaz de investigar y ser muy específico. Una cosa sobre el profesor Mosteller era que podía trabajar con cualquier persona, podía trabajar con los mejores estadísticos de los mejores médicos, estudiantes de posgrado, postdoctorados. Pero también podía trabajar con estudiantes universitarios como yo. Doctora Emery Brown. Y teniendo eso, básicamente viendo eso y honestamente puedo decir que están tratando de emular. David Ferguson. Bueno, eso es bueno. Ciertamente bueno entonces. Hablas sobre tu deseo de asistir a la escuela de medicina en tu tercer año. Entonces, ¿cómo delineó o decidió entre MD, PhD o MD? Bueno, creo que es un desafío al que se enfrenta mucha gente. David Ferguson. ¿Cómo diferenció entre MD, PhD o MD? Doctora Emery Brown. Bueno, creo que lo que pasó fue que cuando llegué a la universidad supe que quería ir a la escuela de medicina. Eso era seguro. Y no recuerdo exactamente si fue en mi segundo año o antes, pero decidí que quería hacer un doctorado también. Doctora Emery Brown Y una vez que realmente me enamoré de las estadísticas, que es entre el segundo y tercer año, decidí que quería hacer mi doctorado en las estadísticas porque me gustaba, él, yo realmente las estadísticas. Era simplemente un paradigma muy poderoso y un marco muy poderoso. Doctora Emery Brown. Lo fue y lo sigue siendo. Y solo quería dominar eso y pensé eso. Pero también quería ser médico. Y pensé, en lugar de comprometerme y hacer una cosa o la otra, ¿por qué no hacer ambas cosas? Doctora Emery Brown. Y así fue como tomé la decisión. Esta fue una idea bastante vanguardista en ese momento, porque cuando ingresé al Harvard MD-PHD programa, nadie había hecho un doctorado en estadística antes, y esa era una idea bastante nueva. Doctora Emery Brown. Ahí había una idea nueva, pero también en otros programas del país porque la gente me miraba un poco sorprendida cuando quise decir cuando dije, eso es lo que quería hacer, mi doctorado en. Doctora Emery Brown. Pero me quedó muy claro que la medicina era un campo que tenía mucha incertidumbre, muchos datos y más ahora. Y tener personas que están formalmente capacitadas y cómo cuantificar esa incertidumbre, tomar decisiones sobre la incertidumbre, parece un camino natural. Doctora Emery Brown. Y es por eso que simplemente decidí hacer. David Ferguson. Sí, eso está bien. Eso es bueno. Entonces... Dadas todas sus responsabilidades y logros, doctora Brown, ¿cómo mantiene una vida equilibrada o cómo se esfuerza por mantener el equilibrio? Doctora Emery Brown. Bueno, es, sabes, creo que la familia es lo primero, no hay duda de eso. Y, ya sabes, los logros básicamente no son divertidos, y tienen que no tienen brillo. Ya sabes, si tu familia está bien cuidada, tu familia no es feliz. Doctora Emery Brown. Entonces, Ya sabes, pasamos mucho tiempo en, ya sabes, tiempo de inactividad los fines de semana de vacaciones, ya sabes, durante el verano, la primavera, cuando los niños estaban en casa, cuando los niños eran más pequeños y para asegurarnos, tomamos vacaciones durante las cuatro estaciones. Doctora Emery Brown. Y a mi esposa, como a mí, le gusta viajar, entonces, y muy a menudo, si tengo viajes a varios lugares para dar conferencias, también los convertimos en una especie de salidas familiares. David Ferguson. De acuerdo. Doctora Emery Brown. Entonces, al hacer eso, me ha sido posible realizar actividades que son relevantes para mi carrera, pero también me aseguro de que, ya sabes, no estoy perdiendo de vista a mi familia. David Ferguson. Sí, esa es una gran prioridad. Entonces, tener prioridades se complementan, para mantener el equilibrio. Entonces, ¿a qué le atribuiría su éxito como pionero en el campo Dr. Brown? ¿Qué le atribuirías? ¿Qué característica? David Ferguson. ¿Fue su crianza de niño? ¿Fue tu época en Harvard? ¿O fue su sistema de creencias? ¿O tu perspectiva de la vida? ¿Qué diría que ha complementado su éxito como pionero en el campo? ¿Sería una tutoría? Doctora Emery Brown. Creo que mis padres y mi familia merecen un gran crédito por ponerme en el camino correcto. Y así, por ejemplo, mis dos padres eran maestros, sentían que la educación era muy importante. Doctora Emery Brown. Cada vez que quería hacer algo o perseguir algo, siempre estaban detrás de mí. Y luego, mis hermanos, siempre somos muy, muy buenos en la escuela también, por lo que la gente siempre decía, bueno, serás tan bueno como tu hermano, y ese tipo de cosas también crearon una cierta cantidad de incentivo. Doctora Emery Brown. Pero no solo con mis hermanos sino también con mis primos. También eran muy buenos en la escuela y, en otras palabras, había estos... Una serie de modelos a seguir en torno a los cuales no creo que usáramos ese término en ese momento, pero podemos pensar de esa manera. Doctora Emery Brown. Pero hay gente que quería ser como, entonces ahora los llaman modelos, ¿no? Bueno, pero uno de mis primos, Robert Brown, que fue a Carnegie Mellon, era un jugador de baloncesto estrella, estudiante de honor, y siempre estaba sentado leyendo libros durante el verano. Doctora Emery Brown. Quiero decir, solo soy, quiero decir, esa es la imagen que tenía de él. Sabes que yo tenía uno de mis primos que era, ya sabes, ¿quién? Lo que era cuando éramos niños nos enseñaba líneas del HMS Pinafore, ese tipo de cosas. Doctora Emery Brown. Y entonces la idea de ser inteligente fue genial. Esencialmente, eso es todo. Creo que realmente puedo recordar esa idea así, ya sabes... Cuanto más inteligente eras en este entorno y alrededor de nuestra familia, ya sabes, más genial eras. Doctora Emery Brown. Y creo que eso me inculcó un yo, por ejemplo, como mí. Mi hermano mayor es un muy buen escritor, y mi hermano mediano era físico o simplemente jubilado ahora. Así que de nuevo, no parecía así en ese momento, pero implícitamente estaban poniendo barras para que yo intentara saltar por encima con solo. Doctora Emery Brown lo que estaban haciendo, con el ejemplo. Así que creo que creo que esos, creo que esos son los orígenes y luego darte cuenta una vez que tuviste oportunidades, las aprovechaste. Sí, entonces tienes algo de serendipia. Tienes algunas personas que se dan cuenta de que tienes potencial y tratan de ayudarte a darte cuenta de eso, como mi maestro. Doctora Emery Brown. En Exeter, que hablaba cinco idiomas. Entonces, quería ser como, ya sabes... Tratar de ser tan competente en tantos idiomas como ELO, por ejemplo, cuando estaba en, cuando era estudiante universitario en Harvard, uno de los anestesiólogos allí, el Dr. Jack Mpeack, se interesó por mí. Doctora Emery Brown. Fue uno de mis directores de tesis. Y es la primera persona que me llevó al quirófano. Y luego, varios años más tarde, cuando comencé a ir a anestesiología, pude acudir a él y obtener asesoramiento, y él me ayudó a hacer arreglos para tomar. Doctora Emery Brown. Una rotación en anestesiología y decidí que eso era lo que quería hacer. Así que además de, entonces, entonces, es una serie de cosas, no es solo una cosa. Así que algunos podrían decir algunos jóvenes. Algunos desde el principio, algunas personas a las que realmente admiré más tarde, algunas personas que, al darse cuenta y reconocer mi potencial. Doctora Emery Brown. Ayúdame. Y yo estaba muy agradecido por eso. David Ferguson. Vaya, eso es poderoso. Sí, así que lo pones para mi comprensión, parece que creciste en una cultura de excelencia. Por supuesto, estoy seguro de que hubo cosas que podrían haberse mejorado, pero dijiste que creciste en un entorno en el que parece que todo el mundo buscaba la excelencia. David Ferguson. ¿Qué dirías? Diría que fueron sus padres o sus hermanos y hermanas los que contribuyeron a eso. Doctora Emery Brown. Oh, sí, sí, por ejemplo. Sí, así la familia de mi madre, la familia de mi madre creció en Pittsburgh y él, mi madre y su hermana mayor, de modo que mi madre es una de siete hijos, por lo que ella era la segunda mayor y su hermana era extremadamente inteligente. Doctora Emery Brown. Ya sabes, su hermana mayor, mi madre era extremadamente inteligente. Se graduó de la escuela secundaria y tenía 16 años. Bueno, recuerdo a mi tío, que es el siguiente en la fila. El tercero decía, esta es tu madre y tu tía y tú y me lo pusiste difícil porque lo habían hecho. Doctora Emery Brown. Bien en la escuela. Tenía que hacer bien en, ya sabes, ese tipo de cosas. Bueno, y sabes, por otro lado, mi padre era muy trabajador. Quiero decir, él era alguien que quedó huérfano cuando tenía 14 años. Él y su hermano habían perdido a sus padres. Doctora Emery Brown. Fueron criados por su abuelo, pero tenían a alguien que por su abuelo, mi bisabuelo, era este tipo increíble. Él era un ministro, pero también era un granjero, y era dueño de esta gran parcela de tierra allí y en Florida donde crecí, que todavía poseemos hoy. Doctora Emery Brown y que era una persona asombrosamente trabajadora. Y sé que eso se contagió a mi padre porque mi padre siempre estaba haciendo cosas tanto para la familia como para la comunidad. Estaba muy comprometido con su comunidad. Doctora Emery Brown. Así que creo que, de hecho, lo sé, sabes, heredé esa perspectiva, ya sabes, esos objetivos, ese tipo de cosas, ese tipo de actitud de puede hacer que mi padre siempre tuvo. Solo te daré un ejemplo. David Ferguson. Estoy aquí para escuchar. Doctora Emery Brown. En ese momento, el abuelo de mi padre quería que él regresara a Florida porque después de casarse, vivieron en Nueva York y en Pittsburgh, y quería que se mudara porque quería que alguien viviera en su propiedad, así que mi padre decidió construir una casa. Doctora Emery Brown. Así que esto es en 1957-1958. Y como pueden imaginar, mi padre no pudo obtener un préstamo del banco para construir una casa. Y como sabemos, una de las cosas más importantes para entrar en el sueño americano es poder construir una casa y, ya sabes, echar raíces, ¿no? David Ferguson. Sí estoy de acuerdo. Doctora Emery Brown. Así que no supe esto hasta muchos años después. De hecho, pidió prestado dinero del taller de carrocería para construir una casa. No pudo obtener un préstamo del banco. David Ferguson. Wow. Doctora Emery Brown. Y recuerdo cuando saldamos la nota, yo estaba como en, 10 11 en ese momento y no entendía bien todo lo que estaba pasando. Doctora Emery Brown. Pero de repente me di cuenta de lo que había sucedido. Pero la cuestión era que, debido a que los medios convencionales que la mayoría de los estadounidenses habrían utilizado para construir una casa, obtener un préstamo del banco y hacerlo no estaban disponibles para él. Doctora Emery Brown. Tenía que idear otra estrategia que funcionara, y lo hizo. Y entonces pienso en eso ahora. Quiero decir, piensa en si no ha sido capaz de hacer eso. ¿Dónde estaría, ya sabes? ¿Dónde estaría ahora si él no hubiera hecho eso? Doctora Emery Brown. Pero luego, a partir de eso, darte cuenta de que si las personas ponen obstáculos en tu camino, tienes que pensar más que ellos. Sí, quiero decir, y me veo haciendo eso en varias ocasiones, pero quiero decir, ese fue probablemente uno de los ejemplos más concretos porque la gente del banco no podía. Doctora Emery Brown. Creo que un afroamericano que quiere construir como una casa real, como un estólido. Ya sabes, tres dormitorios, dos baños y medio, ya sabes, el piso de la sala de estar alrededor, ya sabes, una casa con porche lateral donde pensaron que tendríamos una idea de, una pequeña choza o algo así. Doctora Emery Brown. Pero eso estaba lejos de lo que imaginaba mi padre porque había estudiado artes industriales en la universidad. Así que sabía cómo construir cosas. Su hermano y sus tíos, en realidad construyeron la casa. David Ferguson. Wow eso es bueno. Sí, sí, bueno, estoy aprendiendo mucho, doctora Brown. Entonces... ¿Cómo ha mantenido la visión y el trabajo en equipo en su entorno, en su laboratorio, en su espacio de trabajo, en más general? ¿Cómo se mantiene la visión y el trabajo en equipo? ¿Cómo se asegura de que todos estén colaborando, viendo el panorama general y tratando de responder esas preguntas importantes que... David Ferguson. ¿Mencionaste? Doctora Emery Brown. Creo, creo que hay dos cosas. Creo que uno que buscas para problemas geniales y haces que la gente se entusiasme con tus problemas. Creo que ese es el punto de partida. Y luego, ya sabes, tú, dejas que la gente se suelte y les permites usar su creatividad para comenzar a trabajar y guiarlos. Doctora Emery Brown. Pero esto es lo que me gusta. Me gusta guiar a las personas para ayudarlas a resolver problemas y luego colaborar, cuando necesitan mi ayuda, para ayudarlos a desarrollar sus capacidades creativas y saber cómo enfrentar un problema. Doctora Emery Brown. Creo que eso es probablemente lo más importante y también lo divertido. Quiero decir, ya sabes, siento que en muchos aspectos ahora soy más una animadora, cualquier otra cosa. No soy tanto la persona que hace el trabajo. Doctora Emery Brown. Solo estoy ahí, ¿verdad?, Oh, ¿sabes?, sí, creo que hemos entrado y ofrecido sugerencias y nos hemos asegurado de que la gente no se quede atascada, y creo que eso es probablemente lo principal que hago y honestamente puedo decir que es divertido. Doctora Emery Brown. Es divertido trabajar con, es ver a personas que son, ya sabes, muchos años menores que yo, dominar conceptos que no dominé hasta que tuve unos 20 años más que ellos, como, wow, ya conocen estas cosas. Solo puedes imaginar lo que pueden hacer o podrán hacer, ya sabes, yendo a la... Doctora Emery Brown. Futuro. Y simplemente sentarse allí maravillándose de eso y tratando de facilitar eso es un verdadero placer. Y yo, trato de mantener eso en marcha día a día. David Ferguson. Mientras tanto, cuando comenzamos a terminar, mencionaste que ser inteligente era genial, puedo estar equivocado con esto. Sin embargo, no estoy seguro de que ese sea el mensaje prevaleciente en muchos casos o en muchos círculos. Entonces, ¿qué dirías que podría complementar el cambio de esa dinámica? David Ferguson. Bueno, no son solo los ambientes deportivos los que atraen mucho a los jóvenes, sino también los ambientes académicos. ¿Cómo podemos hacer que ese sea un mensaje más prevaleciente? La curiosidad intelectual y el desarrollo intelectual valen el tiempo y el esfuerzo. Doctora Emery Brown. Sí. Quiero decir, creo que realmente tenemos que hacerlo. Quiero decir, estoy claramente sesgado porque quiero decir, soy un académico y en ciencia, y sé que la gente debería saber sobre cosas en ciencia y ese tipo de cosas. Pero creo que, ya sabes, estoy en deuda contigo por tomarte el tiempo para hablar con alguien como yo, para permitir. Doctora Emery Brown. Yo para contar mi historia. David Ferguson, oh, Dra. Emery Brown. Porque sabes que es, sabes que, es más emocionante saber que Jason Tatum anotó 50 puntos y ganó el juego para los Celtics. Doctora Emery Brown. Ya sabes, entonces, si esa es sólo la realidad. David Ferguson. Eso es cierto. Doctora Emery Brown. Sin embargo, ya sabes, poder gustar, por ejemplo. Tengo tres después de mi padre, tengo como tres héroes, héroes adicionales y matemáticas Un Benjamín Van Necker, el matemático negro de DC, fue la primera persona en caracterizar realmente los ciclos de este circadia, los insectos que salen cada 17 años. Doctora Emery Brown. Así que realmente lo fue y lo hizo durante unos cuatro o cinco ciclos. Así que empezó cuando tenía 17 años, ¿de acuerdo? Entonces, probablemente fue el primer científico de datos del país, Cuando lo piensas. Otra persona es Katherine Johnson, me enteré de ella, me quedé asombrado. Doctora Emery Brown. Básicamente, la mujer matemática, la mujer matemática afroamericana que resolvió las trayectorias de vuelo para las primeras misiones espaciales Mercury y creo que también Gemini. MMM. Quiero decir, solo piénsalo. Ella hizo los cálculos a mano. David Ferguson. Bien, eso es cierto. Doctora Emery Brown. Quiero decir, eso es como irreal. Y la tercera persona tuvo la suerte de conocer a David Blackwell, profesor afroamericano en Berkeley, Universidad de California, Berkeley, profesor de estadística. Quiero decir, como una mente increíble de voz suave, totalmente esperada porque era tan, tan brillante. Doctora Emery Brown el primer afroamericano elegido para la Academia Nacional de Ciencias en 1964, 100 años después de que se estableciera la academia, fue el primer afroamericano elegido fue el entonces, ya sabes, pienso en personas así y digo, Dios mío, si puedo ser como esos tipos, ya sabes, así que, ya sabes, claramente. Doctora Emery Brown. Los logros de LeBron James o Magic Johnson son las cosas de las que se habla a menudo, pero como en mi campo, ya sabes, veo a alguien como esta gente y son como mis, son mis héroes y esas son las personas que yo aspira a ser como. David Ferguson. Wow, eso es bueno, así como concluimos. ¿Tienes algún consejo para aquellos que quieran dedicarse al campo en el que estás trabajando actualmente? Entonces, ¿Científicos en ciernes? ¿Qué consejo le daría a aquellos que quieran dedicarse al campo en el que está trabajando actualmente, ya sea estadística o medicina o simplemente un doctorado, en general? Doctora Emery Brown. Creo que intentan involucrarse y ganar experiencia desde el principio. Puedo decirte que recibo cartas casi todos los días de estudiantes que piden venir y trabajar en mi grupo literalmente y tienen diferentes edades desde la escuela secundaria, ya sabes, hasta la escuela secundaria postdoctorados universitarios. Doctora Emery Brown. Y estoy asombrado con algunos de estos estudiantes que me han dicho que ya saben que algunos de ellos son de los Estados Unidos. Algunos no lo son. Son del exterior, básicamente de los cuatro rincones de la Tierra. Y así, pero dándose cuenta de que eso es lo que hace la gente y no ser tímido al hacerlo, y si la primera vez que... Doctora Emery Brown. Escribe algo de lo que no escuches ahora porque es un trato, continúa si quieres. David Ferguson, Bean, Emery Brown, porque está tratando de crear porque todo lo que necesita es una oportunidad para poner su pie en la puerta. Una vez que tenga eso y se dé cuenta de que se abrirán otras oportunidades, puede ver que esto es algo que los estudiantes de diferentes orígenes están haciendo ahora. Doctora Emery Brown, y creo que los estudiantes en general, en particular quizás los estudiantes de minorías subrepresentadas, son libres de adoptar el mismo enfoque. David Ferguson, Estoy de acuerdo, completamente de acuerdo. Entonces, ¿cuáles han sido algunos de los consejos más beneficiosos que ha recibido, Dr. Brown? Como conclusión, ¿cuál fue el consejo o consejo más beneficioso que recibiste de tus padres, como mencionaste, eran muy trabajadores e inteligentes, incluso de tus colegas o profesores? David Ferguson. ¿Cuál fue uno de los consejos más beneficiosos? Doctora Emery Brown. Los que eran más, quiero decir, Creo que pienso en una serie de cosas, ya sabes, solo al mirar como mis padres, ya sabes, como trabajar duro y también, pero luego alentar las actividades intelectuales, ¿sabes? Y creo que ciertamente. Doctora Emery Brown. Han captado eso y tratan de amplificarlo. Solo recuerdo que mi madre dijo en un momento te dije que era extremadamente inteligente. Sabes que lo era. Estaba muy claro que ella vive indirectamente a través de nosotros. Ya sabes las cosas que pudimos lograr, ya sabes, no solo yo, sino también mis hermanos. Doctora Emery Brown. Y un punto son los momentos más cándidos, dijo, ya sabes, si hubiera tenido oportunidades, estoy segura de que podría haber sido mucho más de lo que soy ahora. David Ferguson. Sí, he oído ese mismo sentimiento. Doctora Emery Brown. Eso también. Quiero decir, eso me quedó grabado y me dijo, bueno, ya sabes, Tengo la obligación de tratar de tener el mayor éxito posible porque mi madre hizo posible que llegara a donde estoy ahora y ella sacrificó mucho para que yo esté donde estoy. Doctora Emery Brown. Y debería, ya sabes, básicamente debería hacer lo mismo. A continuación, un cumplido a las ideas complementarias. Solo recuerdo que mi tío dijo una vez que, ya sabes, nunca está de más ser amable. David Ferguson. Sí estoy de acuerdo. Doctora Emery Brown. Entonces... Si puede ayudar a alguien a ganarlos de la manera correcta, así de simple, no profundo, solo y puede tomar muchas formas. Simplemente puede ser, conocer a alguien en la calle para ayudar a alguien con su carrera, así que creo que en algún lugar, algunos de los mejores consejos que he recibido allí, probablemente otras cosas, pero... Doctora Emery Brown. No vienen a la mente en este momento. David Ferguson. Eso es justo. Eso es justo. Bien... Doctora Brown, muchas gracias por acompañarme hoy, fue bueno tenerte. Doctora Emery Brown, muchas gracias por recibirme, David, realmente lo aprecio. Esta entrevista se grabó inicialmente en 2021 en Teni Podcast.
0: Thank <music> you.